This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The brothers Grimm have a fairy tale about the fisherman and his wife. It's one of the stories that maybe you've heard but is not amongst their most famous. It's a great little story. The account is that a fisherman and his wife live down by a lake in a very modest little hut. One day the fisherman's out on the lake looking for fish, and he catches an enormous fish that he's very excited about that'll feed them for several days. Uh, And as he pulls it in and throws it in the boat and begins to celebrate, the fish speaks to him. And it says, hey, hold on, fisherman, I'm a magic fish. And if you throw me back into the water, I will grant you wishes. Now, at some point, the fisherman might have said, if you're a magic fish, why don't you magic your way back into the water? He doesn't say that. He says, all right, he's a very affable fisherman. He throws the fish back into the water. The fish swims around for a second, pops its head out of the water and says, thank you. Um, What wish can I grant you? And the fisherman thinks for a minute, doesn't have a lot of needs or or wants, but he says, you know what? Um, Our little fishing hut can get drafty and cold in the winter. Can you make it more snug and comfortable so my wife isn't cold in the winter months? And the fish says, sure. He flips his tail. It's done. The fisherman goes home. And when he gets home, he sees his wife, and she's amazed because their hut has changed miraculously in a moment uh, into a a more comfortable little fishing hut. And so she asks what's happened, and he explains. And as he explains, she gets more and more visibly agitated. And at the end of his explanation, she is fuming, and she says, what were you thinking? You caught a magic fish to give you anything you could ever want, and what you asked for is winter-proofing our hut. Go back and ask the fish to give us a nicer full house. You're absolutely right, honey. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. He goes back out on the lake, finds the fish again, um, doesn't pull it in the boat this time, just says, hey, I have a, I have a request. I, I wasn't thoughtful. Can you turn my hut into a nice house? Fish says, sure thing. Flips his tail. It's done. Goes home. His wife is excited for about a day or two, and then she thinks, wow, we really made a mistake here. We could have had something even better. You can imagine how the story is going to go, right? So uh, first they get a mansion, and then they get a castle, uh, then they get a palace. Uh, and, And at the end of the story, they're living in this palace, and kings and queens and nobles are coming from everywhere to have parties with them. Um, But the fisherman's wife feels like they're still not respected like all these other blue blood nobility. And so, she sends the fisherman back one last time to the fish and says, you know, he needs to make us so that, you know, people respect us and, and so that we have the social station becoming to our home. And so, the fisherman goes out on the lake, and he's kind of embarrassed at this point. He's been back to this fish again and again and again. And he says, you know, I'm so sorry, but I have to come back with one more request. Um, Can you give us the social station becoming to our home? And the fish kind of smiles as as much as a fish can smile and flips his tail and says, it's done. And the guy goes back home, and what does he come home to? He comes home to the hut, right? He comes home to the hut, um, but his wife has changed. He looks in her eyes and can tell that she's a wiser woman And having come to respect herself and her husband for who they were, never again was she unhappy or discontent. She came to enjoy the life of a fisherman's wife. Uh, That little story 
of the fisherman and his wife reminds me a lot of Jacob. Jacob, who can never quite get enough, right? Jacob, who's always trying to grab more, who's grabbing, where's everybody else out around him? It's worn out his father and his brother who are kind of done with him. It's actually caused a division between he and his mother and his homeland because now he has to leave for what's going to be more than 20 years before he can see his mother or his home again. Uh, And finally, and what would probably be expected to be a low point in his life on this road by himself from his home to the home of his grandparents, God shows up. And instead of learning to be a wiser man, he just tries to grab from God. He just wants to take from God. Uh, Notice the difference between Abraham and Jacob when God shows up in their life. They get the same blessing, right? I'll bless you, I'll be with you. All nations on earth will be blessed through you. When Abraham gets the blessing from God, he says, great, and he goes. He just leaves his homeland, and he travels to a a land he's never heard of or been to before, and he puts his life in God's hands, and he asks for nothing. When Jacob gets the promise, he says, that's a cool promise, and when you give me all that stuff, I will definitely be one of your followers, God. Just give me the stuff first, right? I I, I don't believe this checks in the mail sort of thing. Uh, I I want it first, and then I'll be faithful. It's an if-then kind of situation. Uh, and in this moment, we, we get again this idea, we talked about this last week, that Jacob is kind of serpent-like, right? Jacob the heel grabber, like the serpent who strikes the heel. Jacob is kind of scummy. And, and whereas God puts Abraham to the test and Abraham passes with flying colors, Jacob puts God to the test, right? All right, God, if you do it, then I'll believe you and follow you. Uh, I, I read an author this week that said, uh, imagine a second grade teacher commenting on one of her pupils for a good job on a one paragraph essay and indicating that pupil had the aptitude to be a good writer, only to have the student respond by dictating to the teacher all the way she should teach so as to retain the privilege of training someone with such potential right? That, that's what Jacob does. He says, oh, yeah, that's neat, God, that you want to bless me. And if you do all these things, then I'll let you bless me, uh, and then I'll be your follower. So, in this moment, um, we come back to the question we asked last week without an answer. How can God advance His plan of salvation through a family like this? How can God advance His plan of salvation through a serpent-like person, a self-obsessed person like Jacob? Uh, and, and there are two really important answers to that question, and the first one is all about God's grace. The amazing story of Jacob, all of the patriarchs, but we get it especially with Jacob, is that God doesn't choose people because they're worthy. Right? God chooses people even at their worst. That this is the, the fallout of the flood, right? In the flood, God said, hey, we're going to give everybody what they deserve, and we wiped everybody out. And then God says, you know what, I'm done with that. I'm going to give people what they don't deserve. I'm going to give people more than they deserve. I'm going to seek people out at their worst and make promises to them. And it's really kind of incredible. The, the grace of God seems to have no end. It, it, it applies to people like Jacob, and it applies to people like Saul, and it applies to people like you and me. And God's willingness to begin to work 
with messed up people is the core of our faith. But in this moment um, where God shows up in the lives of Jacob and the life of Saul to show this incredible grace that lets broken people be part of His plan of salvation, there is a response that matters. And the response of Jacob and the response of Saul are wildly different. Jacob's response is what I would call the opposite of faith. He offers belief, but not trust. Oh, yeah. I mean, God, I believe that you're there. It was a really good dream. That was, the, that was one of my best dreams. I really enjoyed that dream. I don't trust you. I'll trust you if you give me the stuff that I want. I'll trust you if you do everything you said. You can earn my trust, God, but I don't trust you yet. This is the fisherman and his wife, right? Uh, I said last week, you'll never have enough if you're always looking for more. Paul is the opposite. Paul or, or Saul in this passage immediately begins to give his life in response to what God has given him. Jacob just wants more. Saul says, I've already got everything I could imagine. I can't believe what you've done for me. I can't believe that you would pick and love and choose me. My life will be in response to what I've already received. Ooh, by the way, um, Saul also has a very spiritual focus, right, where um, Jacob's focus is entirely earthly. We, we fall into this too a little bit. Um, a lot of times our prayers are kind of Jacob prayers, and I don't mean this entirely in a bad way. A lot of times we pray for very earthly things, right? God, this person is sick, please heal them. God, uh, I'm, I'm in this crisis at work, please help me out at work. God, I'm frustrated with this person, please help us to get along. Those are all really good prayers. Those are biblical prayers. But they're also kind of earthly-focused prayers. And I think what Saul offers us is this idea that perhaps um, in praying for someone's physical healing, I might also pray for their spiritual renewal. And praying for reconciliation with someone in my life, I might also pray that I would develop the fruit of the Spirit that Amanda talked about, patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, that in the midst of my suffering, I might not only ask that the suffering be removed, but that somehow my suffering would connect me to understanding the suffering of Jesus. Jacob, I think, experiences God's grace in a different way than Saul because of um, his sort of self-obsession. Saul is obsessed with serving God but just doing it the wrong way. Jacob's really obsessed with himself. And at this point, Jacob doesn't recognize how much he needs from God. And, and Saul does, right? I mean, this is the beautiful part of Saul's story is he recognizes he is the chief of all sinners. Jacob has what he thinks is a limited debt to God. Saul has what he sees as a limitless debt to God. And Jesus says he was forgiven much, loves much. He was forgiven little, loves little. Uh, and, and so we get in the response to God's grace, I think the two ways that we respond to God's grace all the time. One way uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably bug some people this morning, but one way is uh, the Saul way. It's the unconditional way. I'm going to say it's the dog way, right? 
The dog, you know, dogs, yeah, I know you, stay with me. Uh, I mean, dogs have this unbelievable, unconditional love for us, right? I mean, this is why we have books like Old Yeller and Where the Red Fern Grows and The Incredible Journey and uh, White Fang and Call of the Wild. And we read, uh, we watch Lassie and Ren Tin Tin because, because those are these stories of this unconditional love that, that these animals reflect us because of what we've done for them. Uh, and then the other way is the transactional way. It's the Jacob way. It's, sorry, it's the cat way. You know, it's the cat way, right? Uh, and, and, and cats are really transactional animals. I, I, I really inter- This is probably not entirely true, but I read on the internet, so let's assume it is. Um, there's an a interesting thing I read recently that the, the sound that cats make, what sound do cats make? Meow, right? Meow, yeah, or hiss, right? Okay, no, but the the meow sound that cats make, uh, uh, this may be true. Um, there's a very good chance it's true that they only make that sound um, when they want something from people, right? That cats don't meow to each other in a, in a, in the wilderness or wherever wild cats live, right? They they have learned that ability because they know that when they make that cute noise, our hearts melt and we give them things, right? We are often tempted to live transactionally with God and with each other. Jacob is the poster child for transactional faith, a faith that responds to grace with more self-obsession. Great, what can you do for me? Saul can't be self-obsessed because he is grace-obsessed. He has too much to need more. He has too much to need more. He has everything he could ever want in Christ. So the the first, um, maybe most important piece of this story um, is that God can work through broken families because God is a God of grace who will offer grace to those who don't deserve it and even accept us on the most limited of faith responses. Um, But the second thing that's so important in this story uh, is that God's not only investing His grace in Jacob, He's investing His mission. This is the third time that someone in the Bible has received this blessing covenant. Abraham gets it in chapter 12, and it's a huge dramatic thing, right? Go from your father's house and his kindred to the land where I will show you, and I will bless you, and I will make a blessing of your name, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I'm like, wow, that is an unbelievable promise. And then God makes that same promise to Isaac, almost word for word, and He says, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed, and through your offspring, and through your seed. And here Jacob when he is still far from God, gets that same blessing. Um, By the way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the only ones in the Scriptures to get this blessing. This is why the Bible talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And doesn't, we don't get language like the God of Judah and Levi and Simeon and Joseph. Because no one else except for these three guys get this incredible promise that I will bless you, I will be with you, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, God is on a mission, 
And God is faithful to His promises and to His mission, even when we are not deserving of that faithfulness. And, and this is what we see so powerfully in this story of Jacob, that this covenant that God has made applies to him, though he does not deserve it, because it is bigger than just Jacob. It is bigger than just his family. It is the literal connection between heaven and earth. We've had a lot of attempts to connect heaven and earth so far in the story of Genesis. God has an attempt in the beginning. It's called the Garden of Eden, and it fails not because of God, but because of us, because of our sin. Uh, and then there are a couple attempts to, to fix that connection between heaven and earth. Remember, before the flood, the angels descend from heaven and have children with human women and usurp the role of humans as the rulers of earth, and so God sends the flood to, to straighten things out. After the flood, humans build this giant tower trying to reach up into the heavens so they can ascend to the heavens and usurp the role of the rulers there, and so God changes their language and confuses them and scatters them to straighten these things out. But now, finally, we get the way that that Edenic world can be restored. Now, finally, we get the way for heaven and earth to be united again. It is a ladder a ladder between heaven and earth that the angels are ascending and descending on in the dream of Jacob. A couple of quick things. Uh, first, the word ladder here means like stairway or almost like portal. And we've talked before that there are ziggurats, right, these giant towers um, of stairs. That, that, that's what they have in mind, not like a painter's ladder, right, but this uh, way of getting up to heaven. Second thing that's really important is that Yahweh doesn't use the ladder. You notice this? We're told the angels are ascending and descending on the ladder, so um, heaven and earth are connected, but Yahweh is standing beside it. Uh, and, and actually, the way it's written, um, it, it says the ladder is set up between heaven and earth, and then it says Yahweh is set up between heaven and earth. Almost like there's a connection between Yahweh and the ladder. So when we get to the New Testament, and Jesus says, I am the ladder you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He's saying, I, Jesus, am the connection, the way to reconnect heaven and earth. And the mission of this family from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all the way to Jesus and us today is to help people find that ladder and reach a connection with heaven who designed us. And God has chosen grabbers like Jacob and murderers like Saul to be partners in this work. And what Jacob misses and, and Saul gets is that we are part of this cosmic purpose, that we're not just recipients of God's grace, we're recipients of God's mission. There are a lot of Jacob Christians who don't just miss the grace of God, but miss the mission as well. Um, it's been said that Christians without goals are a little bit like Alice in the fairy tale Alice in Wonderland. And there's a conversation between her and the Cheshire cat, and she says, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the cat says, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. Very often we as Christians forget that we have this central mission to point people to the ladder of Jesus, and it doesn't really matter what other way we go if that's not part of our purpose. 
It's not about getting more for us. It's about getting more for Jesus. But there are a lot of Paul Christians and Saul Christians who are not only obsessed with grace, but obsessed with the mission of God. Uh, Those people who constantly in their actions and with their words are pointing people to Jesus, who love like Jesus and let people know it, who are unashamed of the gospel, who are in their conversations and in their actions one place where heaven and earth come together because Jesus is present in them. See, the only way to bring heaven and earth together is the ladder of Jesus. One of those people, one of um, my favorite people is a guy named Paul Farmer. Some of you maybe know Paul Farmer. Paul Farmer passed away uh, last February, a year ago. Uh, Paul Farmer was a physician and a PhD in anthropology. He had an MD and a PhD from Harvard. He graduated from Duke as an undergrad. Uh, and he was also a kind of a pseudo-missionary. Um, Paul was deeply invested in doing medical work for those who are outside the bounds of our medical establishment. Paul came particularly to fall in love with Haiti, though he did ministry in a number of places. Uh, There's a wonderful book called Tracy Kidder, uh, by Tracy Kidder called Mountains Beyond Mountains that tells his story. Uh, She says, the world is full of miserable places. One way of living comfortably is not to think about them or when you do, to send money. But Paul's life was different. The combination of Harvard and Haiti had begun to enforce a new kind of belief on Farmer. The fact that any, this is a quote, he says, the fact that any sort of religious faith was so disdained at Harvard and so important to the poor, not just in Haiti but elsewhere, made me even more convinced that that faith must be something good. Surely someone is witnessing this horror show. I know it sounds shallow, the opiate thing, needing to believe, palliating pain, but it didn't feel shallow. I was taken with the idea that in an ostensibly godless world that worshiped money and power, or more seductively, a sense of personal personal efficacy and advancement like at Duke and Harvard, there was still a place to look for God, and that was in the suffering of the poor. You want to talk crucifixion? I'll show you crucifixion. Paul spent his life bouncing from the chambers of academia to the hovels of Haiti. And in that work, he was obsessed. He was obsessed. Here's how we describe that obsession. Uh, He said, patients came first, prisoners second, and students third. But that didn't leave out much of humanity, Kidder writes. Every sick person seemed to be a potential patient of farmers. Every healthy person, a potential student. In his mind, he was fighting all poverty all the time, an endeavor full of difficulties and inevitable failures. For him, the reward was inward clarity, and the price perpetual anger or at best discomfort with the world, not always on the surface, but always there. Sensing this, I'd begun to be relieved of the shallower discomforts I sometimes felt in his company. Farmer wasn't put on earth to make anyone feel comfortable, except for those lucky enough to be his patients. And for the moment, I had become one of those. I think we're designed to be obsessed. We're designed to be obsessed. Um, 
And the cure for self-obsession is kingdom obsession, an all-consuming focus on God's grace and God's mission. And the one thing that Jacob gets right, and he'll get it even more right in the future, the one thing Jacob gets right is that sometimes we do need to just grab on to God. Sometimes the only way that we can transition from who we were to who Christ wants us to be is to just grab onto God and be kingdom-obsessed. John Wesley says it like this, I want the whole Christ for my Savior, and the whole Bible for my Bible, and the whole church for my fellowship, and the whole world for my mission field. May we, like Wesley and Farmer and Saul and Christ, be a kingdom-obsessed people. Thanks be to God.